one question I get asked quite a lot is, should there be tourism? Uh, and, and I actually think that it's not something that should be banned. It's hard for people to care about an environment that they've never been to before or they've never experienced. You feel far away from the world, sitting in the middle of the ocean, on the floor, waiting for surveys to finish, and yet somehow a little bit closer to nature. I've always wanted to visit the Great Barrier Reef. Like many people, I've grown up watching documentaries about these beautiful, colourful reefs full of life. After multiple coral bleaching events and predictions of an increase in the severity and frequency of bleaching, I decided to head to far north Queensland and see the Great Barrier Reef before it's too late. In 2018, I went to see the Great Barrier Reef that I envisioned on my bucket list, before that colour became a rarity, before it got worse. I'm Marlene Even, and on this episode of Think Sustainability, we're looking at tourism and its intersections with science. More specifically, the role tourism operators play in scientific research in some special places. How does tourism and science work together to protect places like the reef? How can we as tourists play a part as citizen scientists? And why get the tourism industry involved in the first place? In the second half, we leave the reef and head south, very far south, to somewhere colder. This episode of Think Sustainability is produced by Josh Green. The local knowledge that the tourism operators have of these sites is invaluable to our science. They know these little pockets of reef better than anyone and probably better than any other sites on the reef. And so tapping into that local knowledge is essential to understand what the reef needs from scientists and what tourism operators and people who rely on the reef for their livelihoods need also. Hi, my name is Gemma Gillette and I'm a PhD candidate in the Future Reefs team at the University of Technology, Sydney. Gemma's PhD looks at understanding how to work with natural, ecological processes, specifically coral-fish interactions, to help restoration efforts on the Great Barrier Reef. It's a project taking place under the Coral Nurture Program. The Coral Nurture Program is a world-first partnership between scientists and tourism operators, and it was originally formed with the goal of bolstering not only ecological sustainability, but socio-sustainability in the face of a changing environment as well. The Coral Nurture Program engages in something called coral propagation or coral gardening. And this is where coral fragments are taken from naturally growing reefs and are propagated on these coral nursery structures. So if you imagine little pieces of coral taken from naturally growing reefs, then fastened to these coral nurseries. They then undergo a growth period for a few months and are then outplanted back onto the reef to help um, increase coral cover at these sites that tourism operators visit. 
The program started in 2018, taking advantage of the huge amounts of tourism jobs and revenue created by the reef. It came at a time when things were looking really dire. The reef has faced many different issues, cults, outbreaks, um, water quality issues, but it was really the back-to-back bleaching events of 2016 and 2017 that led to the mobilisation of the tourism industry. Um, There was a real sense of we need to do something, we need active approaches on the reef. And the tourism operators offered a means to, to do that quickly. I think it's important for tourism operators to have access to a means to maintain their sites. It's really their livelihoods at stake. And again, they visit these sites, they know these sites so well and are able to track their changes and a means to help bolster their recovery in any way is important. So collaborating with tourism operators in this way gives them the opportunity to participate firsthand in the research that aims to keep their reef sites healthy. But from the researcher's perspective, there has to be a lot of trust in the collaborative process to make the whole thing work. I think trust is hugely important. We're asking these tourism operators to trust in the science that we put out and it's really their livelihoods at risk, um, will inform them to the best of our ability how they can manage their sites to increase coral cover and hopefully increase the ecological values as well of the site. And there's a lot of trust involved there for them to follow our advice. One of Gemma's colleagues, Lorna Howlett, has written that trust is a well-recognised and important factor in achieving conservation outcomes. Lorna's also doing a PhD in the climate change cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney, UTS, and has worked at Port Douglas-based tourism operator Wavelength Cruises for five years. As far as I know, this sort of relationship hasn't occurred elsewhere in the world so far just with coral restoration and it makes a lot of sense because these tourism operators have been going to their sites for sometimes decades and know them really well and so having that knowledge the researchers can then apply that to coral restoration Um, it's a lot better than researchers just coming to a site where they've never visited before just using guesswork to try and see what was there before Researchers benefit a lot from the knowledge and experience of the tourism operators and their years-long stewardship of these sites. Lorna's come to the program from being a crew member with Wavelength, so she knows the benefits aren't just for the scientists at UTS, but serve the tourism operators just as well. From being a crew member on the boats and when I first got involved, like I said before, it's, you know, it really helps build morale for, amongst the crew, like seeing the results with your own eyes of all the work that you've been putting in. Um, also, it's great economic benefit because um, coral restoration historically has cost a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the fact that we're able to save money by the tourism operators going out there using the boats that are already um, being used for tourism is great. Obviously, all those already trained crew members that are doing it. Um, But also it's great for the tourism operators because 
it sort of gives them a bit of a bit of a jump up amongst some of the other operators in that tourists can go out and they're not just jumping on a boat being put in the water swim around a bit and then go home it's like they can go in and they can see the nurseries and you know they feel like they're with a company that's giving back and it's really good as a tool as well to educate the passengers and educate the general public because they can go out and see the coral nurseries and it always you know triggers those sorts of conversations of oh well why are you doing this and well it's because of climate change and you know the fact that people can see it with their own eyes really helps to spread that sort of message. Yes the tourists are after all the lifeblood of the tourism industry. Thousands of visitors head to see the Great Barrier Reef every day and collaborations like the Coral Nurture Program create public awareness of the efforts taking place to manage the reef. It's also a good message of hope as well. It's, you know, like like as same as well with the crew members. Once that bleaching event happened in 2016-17, it was, it was honestly devastating. It's like, you know, imagine an area that you go to almost every day and you can see it bleaching and you can see some of it dying and there's nothing that you can do. Um, and then, yeah, to be able to see it coming back is great, but then to be able to show the tourists that as well I think is really good. You know, there's obviously a lot more that can be done with climate change, um, the fight against it, but I think what we're doing is like a good thing that people can see. It really helps. Being reliant on the tour operator's vessels for access to the reef also means the demand for tourism impacts how much work can get done. Lorna says that's not the only challenge. Yeah, it's it's tough because up here in North Queensland, the weather plays a big part as well. Um, so the sites that are within the Coral Nurture Program at the moment are sites which can be easily accessed on a southeasterly wind, which is oh, that's maybe 80% of the time. So that means 20% of the year, whether you've got tourists or not, you physically cannot get into those sites. So that impacts it. Um, but then, of course, during COVID, when all these boats were just sat there in the marina and there were all these crew just sort of sitting around idle because there was all of the border closures, that was a great opportunity to get them all out there planting coral because, you know, the boats wouldn't be doing anything otherwise. Thankfully, that coincided with the Queensland government actually um, put in some funding for uh reef monitoring sort of projects so certain operators were actually able to use that money to go out and monitor the sites but also do coral nurture program work at the same time so that really you know in some ways saved the tourism operators during that really horrible time of covid lockdowns um, and border closures but then you know there's also the flip side of when things are really busy there's not that much spare crew to then be able to do the planting. So it's, you know, there's always that sweet spot of when there's enough spare crew to be able to go out, but then the boats are still running to be able to allow for access. So yeah, it's not it's not simple. And, you know, sometimes it's we're at the mercy of the weather. Although the kind of research happening on the reef is a world first, there's somewhere else where similar tourism science research is taking place. 
Close your eyes if you can and imagine Antarctica. What does it look like? How does it sound? What kind of animals might be there? So the question of what's Antarctica like, I mean, if I asked you what's Australia like, you probably get quite a different answer being up in Sydney to being in Tasmania to being out near Uluru or something, right? It's a large continent. I'm Dr. Hannah Nielsen, and I'm a lecturer in Antarctic law and governance at the University of Tasmania. Hannah Nielsen is trying to answer this question. What makes Antarctica special? Antarctica is also a really large continent and it's got really distinct bioregions. I think a lot of times people imagine something really big and wide and flat and icy. My first experience did actually look like that uh, because I went with the New Zealand program and we landed on the Ross Ice Shelf and it was very wide and flat and it felt like you should be listening to violin music. Um, That was my first impression, that the soundtrack in the bus was actually the Beatles, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Heart Club's band, and it it jarred with that scenery because of those expectations. Um, Whereas the peninsula, you know, you've got um, big mountains, you've got a lot of wildlife, whales, the seals, the penguins, um, and a a different sort of history, a lot more of the, the sealing and whaling history, that commercial history in that peninsula region Um, so it's different stories and it's different ways of layering those stories and that's what I find really exciting about that place how have we narrated it what stories do we tell ourselves about it how have we viewed it as a place for profit the sealing and whaling as a place for claiming or exploring with the heroic era um, or these days that place for peace and for science Um, So, and it's also not the same each visit because different sites can look quite different um, seven, ten days apart with snow cover, with the age of the different animals there. So, yes, dynamic and quite regional, um, but also really special in how it can inspire people um, and the ideas that they bring down with them, how that meets up with the reality. That's the thing that that I find super exciting. One of the current projects Hannah is working on examines the role of Antarctic tourism in citizen science. In a place as hard to get to as Antarctica, getting tourists involved as citizen scientists could be a useful tool for collecting data. Yeah, so we've got this project that's looking at citizen science in the Antarctic. And what we would like to know is how do the tourists who go down on these vessels, because most Antarctic tourism is ship-based, how do they experience those citizen science activities? What's their view of those? And essentially what we'd like to know is, is can we make use of the citizen science as a tool for helping to deepen knowledge of an ethic of care for a place? So how could activities like these citizen science activities be designed to help to engage people and maximise some of that positive change. Citizen science isn't a new thing for Antarctica. There are already a number of projects underway, and besides the disruption of COVID, it's actually something that's been growing in recent years. It's a way for people who are visiting Antarctica, which is set aside by the Antarctic Treaty as a place for peace and science, to take part in 
some of that science. Um, so it's, it's a whole lot of different activities. Now, some of them are observation-based. might be that you're taking a photograph of particular wildlife like whales and uploading that to a database to help researchers know where those creatures have been. It might be things to do with sampling, so samples of water. What can you find in that water? Things like the, the phytoplankton, um, projects that look at clouds, um, projects that what they have in common is they are involving those tourists that are visiting this place in that sort of knowledge-making process of collecting some kind of data and feeding that back into something bigger. And so what even is citizen science? It's a broad term, but we've heard some of the activities that might be part of it. When taking part in a program in the Antarctic, though, what's the outcome? Some tourism operators might hope to create ambassadors for Antarctica. So how successful are they? Uh, That's a really good question, and that's one of the reasons that we actually want to be doing this work right now. As you noted, citizen science can be really broad. I mean, can just be sort of defined as that public participation in scientific research. Um, And it's been increasingly used in tourism, um, but there's not been that much research on the impacts of it on the tourist experience. And the reason that we wanted to look at this, particularly in the Antarctic context, is because of Antarctica's status under the Antarctic Treaty System, that place for um, peace and for science, but also because this idea of ambassadorship gets talked about quite a lot. Um, So we want to find out how how does that happen um, and and can this be a useful way to do that. Um, When we think about impacts too, visiting any of these remote areas does have an impact. But the sort of central idea here of the ambassadorship is that people would make some kind of a connection and go home and spread that wider. So spread uh, information about Antarctica and and a care for that place um, back home. So what what we're interested in looking at is is can these sort of activities um, be implicated in an attitudinal shift? Um, and, And if so, how do you maximize that um, kind of a a shift. There's a David Attenborough quote, no one will protect what they don't care about, and no one will care about what they have never experienced. But what if that's not the case? How can we get people to care about Antarctica and be like those tourist ambassadors without them ever having the real-life Antarctic experience? Most people will never visit Antarctica, so the imagined version that they're carrying in their mind about that place is much more real than any ice that they'll actually touch. I think that's really important because you can actually care about a place and have a connection with a place that's mediated through things like films or images or diaries or exhibitions or the stories that you hear from other people. Uh, So it's not only people who go to Antarctica, who could become ambassadors for that place and speak for that place. Um, But one of the reasons of thinking about that ambassador frame in connection with visiting is to see if there can be wider impacts than just at that moment in time in the Antarctic. Forecasts for tourism in Antarctica are trending up for the coming season. 100,000 people are expected to visit Antarctica, but not all of them will be setting foot on the continent, many of them only cruising by. Still, it's the largest number of tourists we've ever seen in any season. 
this tourism, of course, doesn't come without its own impact. An article published in Nature Communications offers a harsh statistic. Between 2016 and 2020, each Antarctic tourist effectively melted about 83 tons of snow. Well, tourism does have an impact in Antarctica,、um, and I, I think it's useful to think about this, this kind of a, a conversation in a broader context as well, because、uh, cruise. Cruise ships, in general, that does have quite a high footprint compared to some other types of travel.、Um, but as I said, things are, are globally connected too. So you, know, you can take some of these types of trips in other places and effectively also have an impact in the Antarctic.、Um, when we're thinking about on the ground, there are specific impacts on the ground too. Things like you know, traces of black carbon that we can see,、um, and that's from tourism, and that's also. Associated with National Antarctic Program activities as well, but I think it's something that's really useful to keep in mind, and I think it's actually something that is coming more to the forefront、uh, with people looking to take a trip. That's judging from some of the advertising material, because in many cases, environmental credentials or opportunities for offsetting impacts are are being sort of included there these days. Um, and I think that's also, a, a, in some cases, a reason for some operators、uh, wanting to support some of these projects as well. If you will have your activity has an, an impact, are there ways that you could also be having some kind of a, a positive impact too? By if, you, if you're going to particular regions, adding to knowledge. The impact of making the journey to Antarctica are so great. Hannah even admits she sometimes wonders if she can justify going back herself. As Hannah and her colleagues work to understand how citizen science programs impact upon their participants, for now one thing is clear: seeing it in the flesh makes it more real for us. We obviously care about these places. No one really wants to see the reef bleached to death and Antarctica melted away, but there's a unique experience on offer in making a physical connection. Perhaps that's what makes tourism so important, after all, and further explains the collaboration between tourism operators and researchers. I just say that idea of being valued and protected and, and understood. I mean, that's also. Central here in, in Australia with the National Antarctic Program,、um, that that concept there of you know, caring, learning about a place to care about a place to want to protect a place,、um, and and I think there are ways that you can build those connections back home,、um, but there are also ways you could strengthen those connections through something like、uh, tourism. One question I get asked quite a lot is, should there be tourism? Uh, and, and I actually think that it's not something that should be banned. I think it does need controls in place, which we do have some at the moment. You could talk about what those should look like in the future, but、um, I think that that helps make it a bit less exclusionary. And, and Antarctica, it's not just a place for scientists. It's not just scientists who have a stake in its future. It's actually all of us, and some may have that chance to visit. And to you know, add more layers to that story of human interaction,、um, but looking at what we do afterwards and how we turn that connection into a care for the place、um, that has wider implications 
I think is really important. And again, that's why we're so interested in looking at that citizen science um, and and the wider ripples that that could have in terms of potentially ambassadorship for this place that I care about a lot and uh, my co-researchers do also. I think one of my favourite parts of the job is taking someone out that has literally never put their face under the water before and it's like they they look down and quite often it's just they're squealing into their snorkel because they're just so happy and just so taken back by what's down there. When you're able to show people that, you know, it can get mundane for us going out to the same sites all the time. It's obviously you have a love for it, but sometimes it does become a bit like a job. But then there are certain times like that when you realise, oh, wow, okay, this has a really big impact on people, has a really big impact on me. And so it's once people have those connections that then you can start bringing in that important message of you've got to try and protect these places, it's under threat. And that's, I think, when it really gets driven home as opposed to people just sort of seeing pictures on a TV screen and, you know, they can't relate to it. I think... It brings it out of the abstract, the reef as a concept, out of the abstract and brings it into the 3D. There's this Richard Feynman quote that goes something along the lines of the imagination of nature is far greater than the imagination of man. And I just feel as though the reef has so many weird and wonderful things that are beyond the imagination. Connecting with that is connecting with the innate value of the reef. And I think it's it's hugely important in mobilising people to care about the reef. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Josh Green. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.